Luke 2, 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is it written in the Lord, law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before this, he had seen the Christ, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelations to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem. This is God's word. Muy buenos dias. Feliz año nuevo. Good morning and happy new year to you all here in the sanctuary this morning and those of you joining us by live stream. My name is Dan Wisher, and I'm, along with my wife, part of the missionary family here at First of Anne. And it's my privilege to open God's word with you this morning. Before we get started, though, I want to recognize the children who are present with us this morning uh, on this First Family Sunday. Um, maybe you kids can help me out with something here. Um, which day makes you more excited? New Year's Day or Christmas Day? Christmas. Christmas, yeah. I've got a few out there awake. Uh-huh. Christmas, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, you know, New Year's is okay. I mean, it makes longer your spring or your, sorry, your Christmas break from school. No homework. Um, but, you know, it just doesn't, New Year's just doesn't carry the same excitement that Christmas does, right? Uh, it doesn't have the same 
uh, meaning, doesn't have the same joy or the anticipation that we all carry. You'll be interested to know that while Christmas is now behind us in America, in much of the world is still very much alive. In Mexico, for example, this Thursday, the 6th of January, is called Dia de los Reyes, the King's Day. It's a day that which Mexico celebrates the coming of the three kings to give gifts to the Lord Jesus, the, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. Um, and quite honestly, uh, that although the kids will receive some Christmas gifts that morning um, on Reyes, or the 6th of December, or uh, yeah, 6th of, of, of January, they receive abundantly more gifts. So, um, I know kids, uh, I may get in trouble with your mom and dad, but I wanted to keep Christmas alive this morning. That's why I prayed for snow, and here it is. Look at this. <laughs> no, but I wanted to keep Christmas alive because we're talking about a special person in the Christmas story this morning. And you'll meet that person in a moment. But before we open God's word and look at it, let's pray together. Father, we want to hear from you this morning. Speak to us through these humble servants that we encounter in this text. Change our hearts and minds, especially as we align them with 2022. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning... You're going to hear a lot about character. Character has to do with our heart and the qualities that make us who we are. Godly character reflects God and comes from a heart that knows God and walks with God. So godly character should be seen in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. In fact, it's so important to our Father that when God needs to entrust someone with a task, an important task, he chooses a person with godly character. Not long ago, Susan asked me to go to the local laundromat to make use of their large machines to wash a couple blankets. An elderly lady saw that I was needing some coins and so she patiently counted out 40 quarters for a $10 bill. We struck up a conversation. And I learned that she was troubled by the results of some blood work she had recently received and words that the doctor had shared with her. And when I brought up the importance of being ready to meet God, she immediately launched into a session of testimony and praise. Right in the middle of the laundromat without a, a, a quiet voice, but a loud voice, she made known how God had healed her twice from cancer and how the church body during those days gathered around her to support her. And by then, that laundromat had turned into a sanctuary. God uses people of godly character. He does so without regard of what the world thinks of them. In fact, to accomplish his will, Father often delights in using people whom our society would consider less important. 
people who are not necessarily rich or famous or powerful. Society would consider my friend at the laundromat less important because she she came or comes from humble means. But for those few minutes, she was leading worship in a place you would least expect. This morning, I'd like us to focus our attention on the least important person of the Christmas story. The reason I've chosen this person is because Christmas is for small people. It's for you and me. It's not for the powerful and mighty, the well-known or celebrities necessarily. And it wasn't for the mighty on that first silent night. Caesar Augustus knew nothing about what happened in Bethlehem. The high priest and the officials who surrounded him knew nothing about what happened on that quiet morning. Christmas was for small people. And the same is true today. Now, with that introduction, I'm sure you're wondering who the least important person in the Christmas story could be. Well, we must cross the wise men off. I mean, after all, they're following the stars. They had to worry with all to travel from the east to deliver gifts, expensive presents to the Lord Jesus. Okay. The shepherds, now that would be a good guess. They were considered near the bottom of the social ladder in the days of Jesus. Yet 13 verses are attributed to them, which make them predominant in the story. Even Simeon is afforded 11 verses. But by deduction, it seems clear to me that the prophetess Anna fits the bill. She was elderly, a widow, apparently poor and without family. And only three verses are given to her in the text of Luke. So, looking at those circumstances, she might be considered the least important person in the Christmas story. And I would venture a guess that in the first century, the secular and religious world would have considered Anna a nobody. Yet, God entrusted Anna, a person whom the world would least suspect, a nobody, with a profound revelation. Come with me as we unpack this story and try to understand why God did this. In verse 22 of our text, an encounter is about to take place. We're in the courtyard of the temple some 40 days after the birth of Jesus because Mary and Joseph had made a short trip from Bethlehem to fulfill the law of Moses. The couple is there for their purification and to present Jesus to the Lord because he was their firstborn. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons or two young pigeons were presented as a sacrifice. These details tell us that this young couple was devout but poor. Little do they know that they're about to receive confirmation of what the angels and shepherds had shared with them and more details about how special Jesus was. 
In verse 25, they encounter Simeon, who had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. He was a righteous and devout man before God. And unlike the religious rulers of the day, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is the Messiah. The one who would comfort his people and his nation. And on seeing the Christ child and picking him up in his arms, Simeon praised God and then uttered words from Psalm 98, extolling God for fulfilling his promise by bringing salvation to the world. The Messiah is the source of salvation, as, as the name Jesus indicates. And in verse 33, we see that the words of Simeon caused Mary and Joseph to marvel. Our familiarity with the Christmas story causes us to overlook the wonder and the marvel that Mary and Joseph and those around her must have felt. Though they had seen or had been told, forgive me, that the son, their son was going to be the Messiah, they may not have comprehended the scope of his ministry to the Gentiles as well as to the people of Israel. Next to appear on the scene is Anna, whom we've identified as the least important person in the Christmas story. Luke introduces her as a person of uncommon character. In verse 36, he tells us about her person. Anna is identified as a prophetess. That in itself makes her very unusual. For only on a handful of occasions throughout the Old Testament do we find the description of a prophetess, a, a woman gifted to speak the word of God to her people. Anna was 84 years old. Given the fact that the average life expectancy at the time was 35 to 40, she literally had already lived two, two lifetimes. And as a widow, life was not easy for her. Although the law said in Exodus 22, you shall not oppress a widow or an orphan. Widows were unfairly treated and taken advantage of. In fact, Luke later in the same gospel, chapter 20, Jesus, he records how Jesus condemned the scribes for devouring widows' houses. Anna had devoted herself completely to the Lord's service in the temple. Since the death of her husband years before, she had led a pious life before marrying, and she remained after the death of her husband. Preaching the same passage, Luke 2, 22 to 38, in 1522, on the second Sunday after Christmas, Martin Luther commented that Anna was a godly maiden, a godly wife, and a godly widow. She was faithful at every stage of her life. And Anna's conduct was congruent with her godly character. Verses 37 and 38 tell us that she served God in the temple day and night. 
with fastings and prayers. It's interesting to me that Luke would describe her life of fasting and prayers as a life of service to God. We usually think of service involves preaching or teaching or evangelizing or reaching out to the poor, the hungry, the imprisoned, all of course of which are forms of service and dedication to God. But this singular devotion of prayer and fasting can also be a ministry. At 84, Anna was still leveraging her time and energy in service to God by taking on the burden of prayer. This ministry far exceeded what we consider the discipline of a daily prayer life today. We get this picture of an elderly woman who spent long hours in the temple grounds between scheduled services, worshiping and serving God by praying and fasting, probably for the needs of the people she encountered. Now, returning to the scene with Simeon, the text says in verse 38, that very hour, Anna steps up. This probably means coming up and standing by. And so when she heard Simeon's wonderful words, her words resonate with his. And Anna was evidently deeply moved and repeated her thanksgiving and kept speaking to all them who were looking for the redemption of, of, of Jerusalem. The root term goel, translated, translated as redemption in verse 38, is only used three times in the New Testament. A goel, and I'm probably pronouncing it with a Spanish accent, I'm sorry about that, was a near relative, a near relative with sufficient means to redeem a relative who had fallen on hard times. Of course, when we hear that, our minds immediately go to the book of Ruth and Boaz. Isaiah 59.20 uses the term goel to prefigure the work of which the Messiah would perform in redeeming a hopelessly lost human race from the curse of sin. The use of goel in Hebrews 9.12 links blood sacrifice with eternal redemption where it says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Goel. Anna's audience understood that she was, what she was saying. Israel's redeemer had come, and he was able to pay the redemption price of sinless blood. There was much Jewish expectation of a Messiah who would redeem Israel from Roman tyranny and even purify his people. But there was no expectation that the Davidic Messiah would give his own life as a ransom to save his people from their sins. Imagine the impact that that revelation had on Mary and Joseph. It was a much needed confirmation of what the angel and shepherds had told them. And for Simeon and Anna, it was a tangible fulfillment of God's promises. And for all those longing for the Redeemer, it was indeed glad tidings of great joy. The Redeemer had arrived. 
Now, you may be familiar with this encounter and the revelations that emerge in the text. And our understanding of the significance of these events are more profound because we have access to the complete New Testament. But I believe there is an incredible irony woven into the account that we sometimes overlook. Why does God choose Anna? Why does God choose Anna to reveal this awesome truth? Why not an angel? Why not a man? Why not one of the others who are waiting for the redemption of Israel? The text simply does not specify why explicitly. But allow me to offer three insights. First, she was a viable witness. We know that Mosaic law required two witnesses for, to confirm the evidence as truth. Deuteronomy tells us that. And Luke revealing that Anna was Jewish, naming her father and telling us that he was, she was part of the tribe of Asher, confirmed her viability as a Jew. So Simeon and Anna were two bookends that, by Jewish law, confirmed the truth to Jewish readers. But Anna also possessed godly character. Proven godly character, remarkable character, unusual character. Anna's heart was right, and she diligently served God and trusted his promises. And while the world might have considered Anna a nobody, God looked at Anna with great favor. We're reminded of the time when Samuel was sent by God to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. Jesse had many sons and his oldest, Eliab, had caught the the attention of Samuel because of his physical appearance. But then God clarified something uh, to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, on his height or stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord looks not sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. God chose Anna because her heart was right. But he also chose Anna to uphold his glory. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, and you're familiar with this verse, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is zealous to uphold his glory because he is righteous. 
In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper explains the connection between God's righteousness and his protecting his glory. And I quote, Righteousness is recognizing and welcoming and loving and upholding what is truly valuable. God is righteous. This means that he recognizes, welcomes, loves, and upholds with infinite jealousy and energy what is infinitely valuable, namely the worth of God. God's righteous passion and, and, and delight is to, is to display and uphold his infinitely valuable glory. This is why the ancient of days, I am, the Father, our Father, says with infinite passion in Isaiah 48, 11, my glory I will not give to another. The Old Testament is full of illustrations of God choosing less than promising material and or people as his instruments. He's pleased to use non-entities in the eyes of the world to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to neutralize high and mighty so that no one would boast. God chose Anna because of her godly character and to ensure that his glory would be upheld. God choosing not to trust the proud religious leaders with the truth in this story emphasizes the fact that God uses people of godly character to fill significant tasks. That should speak to us. Personally and as a church, as we start a new year. On a personal level, we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we striving for? I mean, really. What are we striving to become? Someone who the world would consider significant? Or someone God would consider significantly trustworthy? In Acts chapter 8, we read about Simon the magician. I love this story. Who offered Peter and John money to give him the power to give the people the Holy Spirit. Peter told Simon that God would not grant what he wanted because his heart was not right. Simon wanted to bring glory to himself rather than to God. James Denny, the Scottish preacher, was once quoted saying, we cannot at one and the same time show that we are clever and that Christ is wonderful. Simon wanted to bring glory to himself rather than to God. But prop, proper motives are essential as we seek to serve Jesus Christ. You know, it's customary at this time of year to step back and take note and think about our lives. So when you do, can you in good conscience say that the Father is using you? Are you making a difference in the lives of others by using your time and your talent and your treasures? If not, if not, 
It may be because you're striving to become someone significant. And that is distracting you. I know it does me. Finally, how does this passage speak to our search for a senior pastor? Like many of you, I participated in the transition council interview a few weeks ago. And although we've been associated with First Event for over 30 years, we've only recently moved our base of ministry here to Shelby County. So I really couldn't give an informed opinion about what the church's needs were or, or what kind of pastor would fit the bill. I'll be honest, I, didn't, I just don't have the context. But I am deeply grateful that the body, the leaders of this church, are interviewing people to try to determine our needs. So thank you for that. But the testimony of Anna speaks to the task at hand. It undergirds what the New Testament emphasizes and what I've experienced in ministry regarding leaders. Character is critical. In writing to Timothy and Titus, the Apostle Paul specified 21 qualifications for an overseer or an elder. Now breathe easy. I will save you from looking at all 21 this morning. But I will say that one qualification relates to a specific skill, being apt to teach. The remaining qualifications relate to character. 20 out of 21. Now, you can be confident that those who have earned a seminary degree are teachable and have a handle on the Bible and theology to a certain degree. There are ways to determine their personality and their their spiritual gifts and learn about their doctrine and their philosophy of ministry. References can tell you how they interact with others. And recordings can tell you how well they preach. These are all important, very important. But we assume too much if and when we think that all seminary grads, even those with ministry experience, possess adequate character to do the job of a a senior pastor, the hardest job in America today, as far as I'm concerned. And how do we determine if a candidate meets the character requirements? The Holy Spirit must guide our leadership and we as a congregation and determine these things by reflecting on 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and the other passages that relate to the qualifications of this leadership position. But when it comes to assessing a man's heart, the questions that need to be asked are rather personal and frankly, intrusive. But doing diligence in this arena is critical. There are just a few areas that, here are just a few areas, forgive me, that need to be determined. In specific terms, How does the candidate maintain his walk with God? Humanly speaking, who cares for his soul? Who holds him accountable? Is he teachable? He'll certainly be able to learn, but is he willing to learn? 
Does he dominate conversations or does he carefully listen and accept input? Can he be vulnerable, honest, open, and transparent? How does he respond to criticism? I had a veteran missionary friend who told me one time, there's one thing you'll never lack in the ministry, brother, criticism. (laughs) Part of the territory. How does he show his wife and children biblical love? How does he, as a husband and father, balance his heavy workload with the needs at home? I have seen, from my experience, I've seen that the, the way a man treats his wife and children mirrors how he will treat the members of his congregation. That's my, that's my observation. And what experiences have shaped his values? What has, gone, what has he gone through in life that has taught him about God and relationships and helped him determine what matters to him? Answers to these and questions like them can help us understand what's going on in a man's heart. And doing diligence will force us to ask questions that no one of us would feel comfortable answering. Yet, they must be asked. And if you want a reliable verification of the answers, ask the candidate's wife. The same questions about her husband. Now, you might might ask or say, Dan, aren't you exaggerating a bit? Uh, Aren't you taking this a little overboard and a little too serious with all this talk about character? God's word tells me no. Nothing influences the stability, quality, and effectiveness of someone's ministry more than their character. It will not only be felt behind the scenes, among the staff and leadership, but each Sunday it will be reflected from this pulpit for years to come. Anna's testimony and the New Testament is saying to us, Be diligent that the overseer is a man of godly character. I'll leave one other application as a bonus for you this evening or this morning. The lady in in the laundromat, my friend, and Anna have a lot in common. They both possess a nobody status. But they testified of God's faithfulness, worshipped him, and spread news about him even in their old age. Worship is not confined to this sanctuary. It's not confined to your prayer room at home. Any place our feet take us can become a sanctuary when we testify of God's goodness and worship him. As Francis Schaeffer said, there are no small people and there are no small places in God's economy. May God grant us grace as we strive to become significantly trustworthy and follow the Spirit's guidance to the man of his choosing for our church. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, glory be your name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this, the testimony from this. Dear woman, who I, would, I look forward to meeting in heaven, who walk with you before she was married, while she was married, and after she was married, all her life, and gave herself to prayer and fasting and uh, tolerated the difficulties, the persecutions that came her way. And, and Lord, someone whom you entrusted with revelation. Oh, Father, thank you. Help us to take our cues from that understanding that it's not significance that you use. Rather, it's humility. It's rather faith, hope, and love grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, help us all to live this year striving to be significantly trustworthy. And Father, lead us to the man of your choice in your due time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.